Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel, and it is legitimately Tuesday morning when we're recording, and Ian is out of bed. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Uh, it's Ian Tullock here, and my sleep schedule has been no- notably later than, than most human beings because my girlfriend works night shifts, and I have to peak between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. That's kind of been my work hours lately, so... You're really interrupting a messed up sleep cycle, so I hope you feel uh, happy about yourself. You right are now, literally an owl. Yeah, basically. <laughs> or, I don't know, are pigeons nocturnal? Um, I'm some kind of bird. Yes, true. A bird that carries graphs around, so kind of, I guess, yeah. Just trying to stay on brand. Pigeon clock. P- pigeon clock? I don't even like that one, but... <laughs> Let's get to business. What are we going to be talking about today, Rachel? Well, in, we're going to talk about the internal versus external analytics and kind of what that can show you. We touched on it last week. We're going to talk about um, the All-Star Game and that alternative broadcast they had where it um, it showed all the tracking stuff because I didn't watch the entire All-Star Game, but I it was on in the background poor soul. while I was doing like <laughs> birthday activities. So I sort of had one eye on it and one eye very much not on it. Um, and kind of what that has and what that holds for the future, potentially for the NHL. I did find it funny when we we're talking about, you know, the player tracking and then they just showed all 50 players on the ice <laughs> at once. And they're like, look, it's all right here. And I'm thinking, whoa, maybe there's an, a nicer way to show it. <laughs> yeah. But we will talk about it. Yeah. When it comes to the um, the public versus private kind of data aspect of things, I think it's really interesting talking to you about this because you've been kind of behind that curtain. You've worked with an NHL team when you were with the New Jersey Devils, kind of seeing how they incorporated some of the private stuff into their coaching, into their decision making. So I guess the first question that I have as someone who hasn't worked behind the scenes is how different is it from the stuff that most of us see in the public? Um, it's, it's super different. It really is. Do you want to give maybe an example? Cause I know in the public, we have some cool stuff. We have the evolving hockey website. We have the hockeyviz.com stuff from Micah Blake McCurdy. We do have some really cool public information out there from some people who do some really good work. I think the issue is that the public data can be limited at times. You know, we don't get odd man rushes. We don't get any east west passes in the offensive zone. We can also get incorrect public data. <laughs> And that's, again, that's, that's no one's fault. Well, I mean, it's the NHL's I was going to say, it's, it's definitely <laughs> the people sitting there eating Skittles, tracking shots on goal. What I, what I meant is that the people who are doing some of this great public work, they can only do so much right. with the public data that's given to them. And I think that's the issue here, is that once you get some better data, you can do some cooler things with it. Right. And the stuff that they do, uh, the people that you mentioned, even uh, natural statric Brad, um, it's it's really good. The problem is it's they, it's so limited. What they have a, um, it's tracked by people most of the time, and I think I've spoken about this on this show. I have literally had to go to off ice officials and tell them to stop sorting their skittles during games because they need to be tracking what is going on. The Rangers have been uh, historically bad at this at Madison Square Garden. Oh my goodness. I remember looking at, we were there for a game, um, and I'm sitting in the press box, and it came by, and I was tracking stuff for my own um, job, and I happened to be tracking shot attempts just for my own interest, and then they brought us the stats, and I looked at them, I'm like, yeah, this is not correct. They were off by like 12, I want to say. And so talking to a few people who build the models, I do know that scorekeeper bias is something you can try to adjust for. And it's something that can improve the models. But again, just having accurate information would be preferable. But that's yeah, like that's something where it's just an example. Like there are shot locations that are incorrect. Like there are various things that are there was there was a time where sometimes the penalties were incorrect. Um, like they weren't showing the correct times and then the shift length got screwed up and there are some good articles out there about how secondary assists are often given to the wrong players and not corrected. Oh yeah. I, I can attest to that. Like there are multiple times where that's happened and then we go on to like sport logic and they're like, yeah, that didn't happen, but we corrected it for you. 
okay, perfect, thank you. Um, whereas Sport Lo- Logic, uh, they have a like their deals with NHL teams, and um, they track via algorithm. So it's a little bit different. You don't have to worry about whether someone is paying attention or not. Um, it's basically computer software that individually tracks each player, the puck, the movement, and like exactly how how many frames per second are we talking? Oh my goodness, I don't have the exact number, but it's down to the point where I could sort on the Sport Logic screen a player who made this. Like, I want to look at um, a player's passing. I could pull up any number of games that that player has played in and see every single pass they made, the location, the result, who they passed it to, and then I could click on the thing and see the corresponding video. So as a huge NBA fan, I'm thinking I can go right now to NBA.com and I can look at a lot of the player tracking stats. I can see, okay, what does this player shoot on catch and shoot three-pointer attempts? That's, That's not something you would have been able to look up 10, 15 years ago. But because of the player tracking data, that stuff's all now publicly available. I'm not sure what the NHL is going to put out publicly because we know that this player tracking is in to try to improve, you know, basically gambling. Let's be honest here. That's why the NHL wants to, to show all this stuff because they figure they can monetize. Yeah, this they don't. They're, they're not doing this tracking stuff so that the people sitting in the GM chairs can look at it and analyze it. That's let's just be clear about that. That's not. And what's I don't happening. think they're doing it for the fans. I'd love to think that. I'd love to think that the NHL is doing the right thing to do right by their fans. But we've seen. Time and time again, that's not always the way they operate. But the cool thing is that in the NBA, which I'm a huge fan of, obviously, there's all this cool player tracking stuff that's publicly available. In the NHL, it's not. So you need to to have private data from a sport logic or from a clear site analytics or from some other company who tracks all this using computer algorithms. And you can do a lot of cool stuff with it. And it bothers me because... I'm a huge fan of the Zach Lowe's of the world, of the the Seth Partnows of the world, and they can use some of this awesome public data to make their analysis much better. In the NHL, we don't really have any of it, and it results in our analysis being pretty lazy and narrative-driven, in my opinion. Yeah, and let's just, like, hockey is narrative-driven in the first place. Um, I know you watched the Leaf game last night, and there was an individual that said the Leafs needed to trade Rasmus Sandin for a top 4D, to which they, you then argued that he already is one of their top 4D. And that's kind of one of those things where it's it's literally what fits my narrative, what's convenient for me, versus people like you brought up, like Zach Lowe and Seth Partnow, who actually do really good things with the data that, that tell a story that's unbiased and and shows the entire thing as opposed to just one little portion of, what am I trying to convey? Because I could pull a stat off of Sport Logic that could make anything look good or bad. Like you can definitely cherry pick, but if you use and encompass the data as a whole into your story, you're going to tell a better story. And that's the thing. Once you get really granular with stuff, you can start finding anything that someone's really good at. The question is, how much does each part matter and you know for example you could have a player who is good at closing off the boards in the defensive zone but if that player can't advance the puck up the ice and can't do xyz then they're going to get stuck in their own zone a lot more often so you got to find a way to know what's important what matters what doesn't kind of weighting it all against each other kind of the same way we all do when we're doing player evaluation it's just now you have some kind of objective data to back that up right and it's not just play-by-play data that's been used to create models like we have legitimate data that you can actually go and this is super important for hockey coaches and gms and and people of that kind of mindset the fact that they can click on said data point and see the corresponding video then you can turn that into a coaching thing you can be like okay you can start noticing patterns. When you're here and you make these passes, you are successful when you do X, Y, Z, and you are unsuccessful when you do X, Y, and Z. And do you know how helpful that would be for someone like me who loves incorporating video into his writing? You know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of stuff where I just think, oh, I wish I had this, and I don't. It was so easy for me to prove points before because it was like, oh, we should put him here because he's good on his back end. And then I would pull up all of the passes and be like, okay, so there are eight turnovers here and four completed passes. This is not a good idea. 
yeah, your eyes may be lying to you sometimes when you see all the positive plays, but then when you look at everything in, in the aggregate, you go, oh, wait, no, maybe that's not a great decision. Or you can even, it's one of those things where you could pull it up and you could show the player. When you skate yourself into this bad ice, is what I call it, you, you skate yourself into a corner or into a checker, one of those things. You skate yourself out into of like space. like a triangle of players that are surrounding you. Right, unless your name is Connor McDavid, the odds of you getting out of that are very slim. Um... If you skate yourself into that, you can show the player, okay, when you carry it in on your backhand in this area, you skate yourself into bad ice because you aren't looking in these directions. Whereas if you skate it in on your forehand, you're more apt to look. There are less turnovers. You make these passes. You create these scoring chances. Like It could be a number of things, but there's always video associated with it and the statistics. So it's very much an easier conversation to have. That sounds like a a way to kind of make it a lot easier for the coaches and the players to understand. And I feel like video's always been that best in between to help explain, okay, if we're talking about something statistically, let's show a video of what we're talking about. When I'm talking about, you know, zone exits or zone entries or something nerdy like that, it's much easier for me to pull up a clip of an excellent transitional player. You know, Nathan McKinnon comes to mind for me, where it's just like, okay, he picks up the puck in the defensive zone and skates it end to end. But that's a special talent. Let's talk about someone with a bit less talent who does move the puck up the ice really well. Who's someone who comes to mind for you? Um, I'm president of his fan club, so Marcus Johansson. <laughs> yeah, this is just the Marcus Johansson podcast. Yeah, that's basically what it is. Um, who else moves the puck up really, really, really well? Roman Yossi moves the puck well. Victor Hedman but, moves the puck well. Like, you know, we're thinking about defensemen, right? Yeah. I remember just kind of what I'm remembering. Um, Damon Severson moved the puck relatively well. Sammy Vatnin moves the puck well. Yeah, but you don't want either of those players necessarily in tough minutes because you're not sure if they can handle them. Excuse but me, Damon Severson scored last night. Did he score in his own net like he did in that game against the Leafs? Because <laughs> that was not. very helpful. I want to, Again, can you buy him a drink for me? Because that was a good time. I really <laughs> appreciate that. But. No, but that's one of those things where you make a really good point where uh, if you can't close a guy so you're missing half a skill you can't close a guy but you can move the puck out really well well if you can't get the puck in the first place then it isn't gonna matter and vice versa if you can close a guy but then you are an absolute tire fire with the puck and marty marinson comes to mind um that's not gonna help either because you're gonna turn the puck over like it's one of those things where you have to have a bit of both or you have to be able to recognize your weakness and work on that weakness Or your coach just has to understand, okay, these are the strengths and the weaknesses and the limitations of this player. Something I've always wondered when it comes to working with an NHL team is how you communicate some of these ideas to a coaching staff or to a player, for example. Because I know that the players these days grew up with more stats than, you know, the the, the 200 hockey men did in the 90s. So I feel like they might be more uh, receptive to these kinds of uh, new ways of thinking. And a lot of them now are, are reading more stuff online. And, you know, they're on hockey Twitter, even if it's uh, an egg account. I was going to say one of those fake accounts, you know, uh, one of Kevin Durant's burner accounts. But I'm curious how you go about communicating some of these statistical ideas, you know, from looking at the private data, but then explaining it to someone in more of a hockey kind of sense. I think everyone does it differently. The approach I take is when I'm presenting information to someone, how do they want it? It's not about how I want to present it. It's about how are they going to understand it? So when I would give stuff to John versus giving stuff to Jeff Ward or Roly Melanson. And that's John Hines who used yes. to coach the each of them liked it presented in a different way. And so instead of me just having my uniform studies or reports where I would just send them and they all look the same, then they're less likely to use it if it's not in a manner that they can understand it. So I find that having conversations with them and asking, okay, how are you going to best understand this? Then I organize how I'm going to present it so that it's best suited to them. So um, if it's more video, okay, then... um, what I would do is here's like the the report because I'd email it to him. And then here in Sport Logic, I have set up a playlist for you and shared it with the corresponding videos. So like the report would say like video one, video two, video three. And then you'd go into Sport Logic. There would be a playlist that would say like coach playlist. 
um, they'd click that and then the videos would be there, video one, two. So as they're going through, they can click the video and watch it and it's already there. They don't have to go sort and find it. It's kind of similar how, how I write my articles. I, I, a lot of the times I have video one, video two, video three. And then <laughs> I found with John Hines, um, he liked his, like his one sheeter of like, okay, tell me the important stuff. So for me, I'm not even going to read sentences. So what makes you think an NHL coach is going to read sentences at 11 o'clock on a game day? It's not going to happen. It has to be bullet point. There need to be pictures, like diagrams of the charts so they can see the tangible up and down. They can You're see the shot You're not just going to copy location. and paste a 3,000-word article by Ian Graff? I'm disappointed. I am not. <laughs> um, sorry about that. But it's one of those things where you have to cater to the person you're communicating. So if you're communicating to me, or Harmon Dial is communicating to you and I, we all speak relatively the same language in terms of video and numbers, whatever. But if Micah McCurdy, let's say, is communicating to me versus communicating to um, somebody with a PhD in statistics, he's going to communicate differently because... I don't have that, and neither do you. And you can't. I have speak that the same a lot language. when I'm DMing the evolving wild twins, where I'm like, "Okay, s- explain this to me like I'm five years old," because I don't est- understand a lot of the the logistics that go into the machine learning and everything. But exactly, I'm smart enough to understand why you're doing what you're doing. I just don't understand the intricate details of it. Right. So a conversation between someone like Micah and Seth Part now about um, presenting numbers and and just talking about analytics would be much different than a conversation between you and Seth Partnow because your colleagues at The Athletic or me and Seth Partnow. Like, I ask that guy a lot of questions, but I don't have the level of conversation that him and somebody like Micah would because it's just different. It's a different level of understanding. So when you're presenting something, you have to be mindful of who you're presenting to because if they're not going to understand it, then it doesn't matter what you're saying. You could be talking about rainbows and it's irrelevant. And I feel like that's a really important thing whenever you're trying to teach someone a, a, a concept or if you're dealing with people who have worked in hockey their entire lives but aren't the, the greatest when it comes to math. And I feel like that's a lot of people who, you know, math always scared them off in school and when they wanted to, you know, pursue further education. I had so many people in my first year stats class who were just like, wait, whoa, I took social sciences. I thought I could get away from math. And like, it's this thing that's, that still haunts people. It's like, no, get these numbers away from me. But I feel like if you can present stuff in an easy to understand manner, it's kind of the, the style of writing that I've been going for lately and I'm trying to incorporate a lot more video into my analysis i feel like that tends to connect with a lot more people who are more familiar with you know hockey concepts and hockey terminology if i can explain getting the puck up the ice staying in the offensive zone and generating lots of shots on net that's better than talking about coursey and expected goals and you know rapm it's just it's going to make more sense to someone who who works in hockey but okay so expected goals and i'm glad you brought that up If you actually just took a step back and really thought about what those two words mean without a context to hockey, it's very easy to understand. And that's every time someone... Aren't all goals unexpected, Rachel? (laughs) (laughs) Like, honestly, every time someone gets up in arms with me about expected goals, I'm like, listen, okay, let's let's remove hockey. Let's, Let's remove sport. If you are expected to do something and that outcome doesn't happen, are, were you still expected to do that? Yes. So your expected performance didn't match your actual performance. So if I was supposed to drive somewhere in 60 minutes, but it took me 72 minutes, there is a gap of 12 minutes that was over the expected amount of time. Now, for me, it's usually 12 minutes under, but that is a completely different discussion about mind driving. It's the same thing in hockey. If you're expected to score four goals, but you only scored three, then you scored one less than we expected you to. That is literally what it is. Might have been a hot goalie, might have been some luck, might have been some bounces. Exactly. So I think the, the difficult thing so here is that... People get so up in arms about it. And it's like, it's actually very simple if you put it in layman's terms. And don't think about it as if you need to be a math teacher. 
this is the way I like to, to think about it. How often does the average breakaway go in? It goes in about one-third of the time. Okay, so that's going to go in 33% of the time. Let's give that an expected goals of 0.33. Like, that's how many goals that's worth. Do, so do it they didn't go in, but that's a good thing. for shooting talent? I feel like they do, because Patrick Kane and Austin Matthews and, and Stars definitely score more than three of ten breakaways. That's definitely something that you can account for. One thing I like to do is I look over the last four or five years, and I see how different is a player's actual goals from their expected goals. And like you said, the elite shooters will be at the top of that list. Patrick Lane has historically outperformed his shot locations like crazy. Yeah, because he, he just stands at the top of the circle and wires them like Ovechkin. But he scores as if he's shooting from the crease. So he's just <laughs> able to outperform those expectations. Whereas Zach Hyman's the example I always use in Toronto oh, because... God. That guy gets so many chances in tight from the crease, but the poor guy can't finish. Michael Grabner is another one that comes to mind. Michael Grabner in Toronto comes to mind. Michael Grabner in every other city he's played actually scores a lot. But then again, if you account for the fact that all of those shots are on breakaways, then yeah, he underperforms them a little bit. And this is where the private data versus the public data comes into play because... In the public data, we can't account for odd man rushes, and we can't account for pre-shot movement passes, east-west, and that really matters. And when you consider that most of the goals in the NHL come off the rush, and the highest percentage chan- uh, chances off passes. the rush are, yeah, that's when you look at the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Washington Capitals, Tampa Bay Lightning, even the Toronto Maple Leafs, the way that they generate so many chances is off the rush, a pass, and a shot. And it's hard for goaltenders to save, but that's not accounted for in the public data. And I think that's where a lot of the disconnect is on expected goals, because I know the Carolina Hurricanes for years were the example of, oh, they've got these great expected goals numbers, but why don't they win? And some of that's goaltending, where you just need a goddamn save. And some of that's scoring talent, like you said, not having the Patrick Canes and Austin Matthews of the world. But I do think some of it in the past was a lack of pre-shot movement and was a lack of yes. generating stuff off the rush as opposed to off the cycle. And if you look at shooting percentage, it's way lower off the cycle than it is off the rush. Because think about it, you just have a lot more space as a shooter. And we can talk about the whole east-west passing thing. That's something you can sort as well in the internal data. But the one thing, so at the NHL All-Star Game, one of the seemingly 80 things that they showed on that stat broadcast was the spacing. So there was a point where they would have the three players on one team in a triangle, and they would show how many feet were between uh, each player. And that's one of those things where if you're making an east-west pass at 32 feet versus... uh, 65 like that's a much bigger movement to cover for the goaltender and so you gotta account for that as well and and as this happens um as we get this data maybe that's something that'll get accounted for okay if this pass went this much longer that means the goalie had to move this much more you're more likely to have a high danger chance to score or create a rebound off of that just because the movement required from the defensive team is is so much greater. And I think that's going to be how we end up, quote-unquote, solving this whole goaltending problem because in the public analytics, there's in the public data, we suck at evaluating goalies. It's, and it's because the nature of the data doesn't take into account all these factors that really matter to goaltenders. Okay, hang so on, though, sense. but internal analytics have been a thing for probably five years, and there are people in the NHL clearly based on the Vesna voting, that can't evaluate goaltenders. Well, wins, baby. Oh, Just my win. God. Because, like, okay, John Gibson, <laughs> perfect example, right? Unbelievable. This guy is just how many saves above average season after season and just doesn't get a sniff because Anaheim's not in the playoffs. Well, we, that's Randy Carlisle's fault. You just you can't win a major award when Randy Carlisle's your coach. It's not allowed. <laughs> no, but that's one of those things where it's like even when you have internal analytics, if you don't know how to use that information and that data, you still don't know how to make a damn decision. So how do you use that data? So uh, let's say someone is trying to do a better job of incorporating some of this new information that they're not as familiar with, but okay, we've hired some people who understand it and can help me understand it. 
What's the best way for someone who's maybe unfamiliar with some of these newer concepts to incorporate it into their decision-making process? You need to, A, hire the right people. You can't hire people that are your friends or that, like, this guy said, oh, I read one thing on the internet about, like... No. Chris Russell's actually second in the league in this stat, and Nicholas Cromwell's first in it. Therefore, it's a good stat. I'm just thinking, who the hell told you that? Yeah, or like, <laughs> I'm hiring this person's son. Like, no, stop doing that. Hire people like Andrew Thomas, like Alex Mandricki. Hire somebody like Micah Blake McCurdy. Or, for God's sake, the twins literally live in Minnesota. Hire the twins. Um, and they, these people have experience legitimately explaining things to old crazy fans who want to trade their star player because he's from Europe or he's too soft and whatever the case may be if they can make things that are understandable to the public odds are they can probably make them understandable to you so the first step is hiring people who know what they're doing that's step well, they gotta one. stop tweeting about Zach Aston Reese being a sulky candidate, but that's that's another <laughs> topic for another day. Yeah. So step one, hire people that know what they're doing. Step two, listen to those people. Because it does you no good if you hire them and they present you with all of these things that are completely understandable, and then you still do the opposite of what they're telling you and don't take into consideration what they've said. I think the issue there is the communication barrier between this kind of, you know, old school eye test and this new age numbers. It's an and issue anyone, for sure. And that's the thing. Anyone who's really smart who I've talked to, even people who work in hockey, they think that that's moronic. And you can talk to smart head coaches like John Tortorella, and he's obviously been incorporating, you know, scoring chances into Did his... Did you see the article and, that Allison Lucan wrote about how... Their assistant coach tracks puck touches and their positive and negative impact and you get points for it and that tells you how good you are without the puck. Like, that's brilliant. Yeah, and people don't realize this, but John Tortorella has actually been kind of an innovator over the last few years. He had Sam Gagne on that all-skill fourth line that kind of helped revitalize his career. I know that John Tortorella has a reputation over the past decade for being a bit of an old-school hard-ass, but I think Allison Lucan in, in for the Athletic Columbus has done an excellent job of showcasing some of the interesting ways that you can incorporate some of this newer information, even if you're a quote-unquote old-school coach like John Tortorella. So I think the communication aspect is the biggest thing here, in my opinion. Oh, it's absolutely, because you have people who are extremely smart with master's degrees or PhDs in, in various things telling you, like, okay, this is the unbiased thing, and and when they get told, oh, nope, that's not how it works, they're like, well... They get their back up. They get defensive in the same way that the hockey people, and I have seen this, they get told, okay, like, this is kind of how it, we should evaluate. These are things that are important. They're like, well, don't tell me. Like, I've been watching hockey for 30 years. It's like, no, 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 no. Nikita Zaitsev is bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Nikita Zaitsev is not the top t- pairing defenseman you think he is. Every time he's on the ice, he gets stuck in the defensive zone, no matter what the situation is. At some point, I honestly just that's think a it's, bad thing. it's a function of everyone being way too defensive. And we talked about being open-minded, I want to say a couple weeks ago. Nobody's open-minded. The really smart people aren't open-minded to the fact that watching hockey for 30 years has some merit. And the hockey-watching people aren't open-minded to the fact that math could also have some merit because that's not what's been the status quo and i don't think it's going out on a limb to say that hockey doesn't like breaking the status quo that's uh it's a nice way of putting it it's not a hot take I think when you look at the evolution of sports like basketball and baseball, they've done a much better job at incorporating some of this new information into the way that teams go about making decisions. The pushback you'll get is, oh, but hockey, it's a lot more difficult to, you know, use numbers to, you know, to to use these kind of machine learning techniques to try to isolate value. But if we're able to put people on the moon using, you know, algorithms, and if we're able to do all these kinds of different surgeries and, and measure things within the body using these different machine learning algorithms maybe we can use it to analyze people putting a puck in a net i don't know call me crazy 
But I think it's possible. I think it's possible to get some kind of value out of that information that we've been using in literally every other like industry. We literally have machines that are capable of rebooting your brain and looking at your brain waves and looking at how your brain functions and the pathways. If we can do that, surely, surely we can use some of that smartness and apply it to hockey. Like, it's a little black vulcanized rubber thing that we are skating on ice with using what used to be basically two by fours hitting around. Like, it's not that hard. It really sports, is I, not I've, that difficult. It's frustrating when you hear that sports are the one things that are impervious to, uh, you know, measurement. Oh, God. And it's just, I'm sorry. Again, it's, not, it's not true. But again, that's kind of a sarcastic pushback on my end, who has always been told by the, the, you know, the 200 hockey men of the world that, oh, you know, you can't just use numbers. And anyone who's seen your work or my work and thinks that we're only using numbers is that's a straw man argument and it's always bothered i literally took someone out of the lineup for york last week because i was like okay like his numbers were uh half decent and he had a good game score because he scored a goal but like okay he gave up a two-on-one that resulted in a goal he took a dumb penalty that resulted in a goal and then he made a poor decision that resulted in a goal like i'm sorry but you have to come out at that point I don't care whether you had good possession at that point. You cost our team three goals. I have a lot of comments in some of my post-game report cards where it's like, hey, this player had really good expected goals, good Corsi, and, you know, he had a, a goal and an assist. Like, how could he? How could you possibly give him a, a bad grade? I'm like, did you watch him play? He played terribly. Like, yeah, he turned the puck over <laughs> 17 times. Like, I'm like, that goal bounced off his ass and went in. That assist was a secondary assist where he wasn't involved with the play, and he made a lot of negative decisions with the puck. His line mates played great, and the results were great when he was on the ice, but that doesn't mean that he played well in that one-game sample. Now, over a large, if he did that over a 30, 40, 82-game sample where he's getting stuck in his own end, yeah, that's a problem. We're going to have to figure out why that's happening. But in a one-game sample, man, people telling you that your eyes and the video doesn't matter, maybe it's because most of our eye tests suck <laughs> and relying on some credible scouts and, and uh, you know, the Justin Bournes of the world who are really good at video analysis. I think that's what it comes down to. The average fan, maybe you shouldn't trust their eye test, but people who are paid to work in hockey, I think there's some value to the eye test and the idea that you only use numbers or you only use the video. I just think, again, such a straw man argument, and that's not how we're going to move forward as a sport. Right. So let's talk about how they used the data at the All-Star game because we talked about how they used the spacing but then there was a number of things there were things like shift length and maximum speed how often the puck was on your stick how fast the puck was traveling at all times like there were just so many things and I can't help but think first of all the switching back and forth to see everything like it was it made my head spin and admittedly I wasn't paying extreme attention but I had friends text me and say, like, it was just very confusing. It was cool to see everything that could be tracked, but it was very confusing. So I almost think it's an opportunity for the NHL. Like, what if you had Game Center and you could pick in your Game Center which things you wanted to see? So if I wanted to see shot location, that could pop up, like, on the side. If I wanted to see how fast the puck was shot, that would pop up kind of by the scoreboard. If I wanted to see how fast a player was traveling or what the spacing was, I could see that. Like, Do you think there's an opportunity there? And I think when you look at the way that media is evolving, we're getting away from cable TV and we're using a lot of streaming services now. You look at Netflix, Crave, uh, Disney+, Plus, etc. Everyone has some kind of device, whether it's a smart TV, an Apple TV, a PS4, Xbox, and they're using that device to kind of try their best to eliminate cable. So if you're the NHL and you're trying to grow your brand and you're trying to, you know, grow your product, I think you have to assume that 10, 15 years from now, more people are going to be using the streaming service as opposed to watching on TV. And I think a cool way to help make that streaming service kind of... I don't know what the right word is, but to make it unique to every individual, you could have these different settings that you could have on the game. If, if you're new to hockey and you, you have trouble following the puck around, you could turn on the glow puck. We saw it in the All-Star game, and it bothered most of us, oh. but some people, some people get value out of that. You know what I mean? Some people who are brand new to the game have a lot of trouble following the puck around. Right. So and if so you, you have could that, turn on, that on, you, 
Yeah, it could be a setting, but other people like me would turn it off because we find it <laughs> insanely bothering to us. But if you have different settings that could adjust the way that you watch the game, I feel like that could be a really cool thing that would help people. And it's something you can do. We have the technology for it. It's just whether or not we see the league do it. But clearly the technology's there, and I think that's what they were trying to showcase at the All-Star game is, hey, look, this stuff can be cool and it can be kind of interesting. I don't think the NHL really realizes what it has and the potential of what it could become, but I like the idea in theory. I just, I'm hoping that they understand what it could become. But again, I have such little faith in this league that I tend to be pessimistic. It's like the Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. They have the power to do something really cool here in terms of you could do things, let's say, with the spacing. You have three two-on-ones in a game and they only scored on one of them. You could literally go to the point where a pass was made or wasn't made and look at the spacing between the players and look at the spacing between the two guys versus the one guy and how close he is to another guy and, and determine how you want to play that two-on-one and what's successful, how many, how close are you, like various things. Also, you can just put a toggle in like the videos for the game, just search odd man rushes. A lot of the times, those are the major scoring chances in every game. If I could just quickly look at all those in the game, I, I, that would be a lot cooler for the fan. Maybe it's just me, the inner analyst to me, thinks, hey, that would be an easy way for me to write articles. Okay, so think but, about this for a second. Let's say the game's on TSN, right? Okay. And Ray Ferraro is broadcasting it, or uh, Jamie McLennan, or Mike Johnson, whichever one of the three of them, because they're all very good. And they have access to this chip data, and they can see, okay, X, Y, Z. They can, they would literally on a replay be able to say, okay, um, this pass was made, player X made this pass, and it it moved like this quickly to a player that was this far apart, which means, and from like Jamie's perspective, the goalie would have to move this fast. Does he even have a chance to make that save? Imagine the analysis that those three could do. I think you don't want to overload people with information. You know, you don't want to scare people away with too much if, if they're not sure what to do with it. But again, you put smart people in a position to use that information, the Ray Ferraros of the world, the Mike Johnsons of the world, like you said, Noodles, uh, Jamie McLennan. Bryce Salvador in New Jersey actually does a really good job of it, too. Yeah, I don't know as many of the local broadcasts. I've been watching a lot more NHL TV this year, but I don't know the names quite as well. I'm, I'm getting better. but Or like imagine giving someone like Harmon Dial, who maybe does the odd intermission, that power where he can explain that. Like, oh, and now we're talking about the growth of the game. Now we're looking forward. We're not just talking about right now. We're thinking, hey, five years from now, where could this be? That's the kind of stuff you're thinking. Exactly, because when that happens, it's like, oh, it's a great pass. Okay, tell me how great that pass was. Like, how much space like, did he have to make that pass? He had four inches to get that puck through. Yeah, or some of the saucer passes you see by some of the skilled players. It's just like, oh they make God. it look easy, but like that that shouldn't have been completed. And now, all of a sudden, this, this puck, like... That shot would have been a, a, a 10% shot. Now it's a 40% shot because he got that puck across. Exactly. That's, that's the, then again, maybe it's because I'm really nerdy and that's how I think about the game. Maybe most people don't want to hear that. I'm not sure. The three of them at some point are going to hear this clip and just be like, these two are idiots. Like, we're not doing Such that. Such nerds. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's transition now and do our Kovalev shift. For people who haven't been listening, we do an Alexei Kovalev shift where we hop on the ice, we float around for a few minutes, and we talk about the topic du jour. Then we hop off the ice and our coach yells at us. You know, just typical Alexei Kovalev stuff. What are we talking about this week, Rachel? Uh, we're going to do Bell Let's Talk. So tomorrow, this is January 29th, is Bell Let's Talk Day. Um, if, also, if you're new to this podcast, um, surprise, Ian and I both suffer from mental illness um, to the point where I actually had to take like a full-fledged social media break um, just because it was totally screwing up my mind and certainly not helping. So we're just going to cover kind of why Bell Let's Talk is important and um, kind of some organizations or some people that are doing some really good things for mental illness and I think it's just our way of doing our part to kind of end um or help end the, the stigma around it because uh it sucks and yeah I mean like I have a bunch of physical ailments as Ian likes to make fun of me for <laughs> um but they get way more care than my mental illness does it's from the government like from we have healthcare and Toronto and Ontario and in Canada um and they get way like the physical ailments get way more attention and care than 
the mental ones do. And I think this is sort of um, a good, maybe public way of showing that both deserve care. And I've always found that talking about my mental health always helps because then people in my family, my friends, even on my podcast, I like talking about my mental health, just kind of giving people an update because if anything, I can use this platform for good and I want it to be uh, an avenue where I can talk about things like the fact that I went through some serious depression a few years ago and I wasn't really sure what to do when I was first going through it. I didn't know what it was and I felt kind of ashamed to reach out for help. I think a lot of guys get stuck in this, you know, stupid uh, you know, oh, tough it out kind of thing. And then you, you feel like you can't go ask for help. You feel like you can't go to your family or friends and tell them what's going on. And then you just get deeper and deeper down into some bad habits until things get really bad. I think the big thing that I like to talk about is it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to tell people, man, my mental health's been real shit lately. The last month is, you know, I haven't been able to get out of the house as much. The sun's going down earlier. Seasonal depression, it's a, it's a thing, you know? And a lot of people, especially this time of year, and I know December when uh, the holidays come around is, is when I think it's at its worst. Right. But my last month and a half hasn't been as great as I was doing earlier in the year. And I just like talking about it to people talking about you know how can i improve things and how how can we how can i do better how can but with without feeling bad without feeling that guilt without feeling that shame and you know because you shouldn't have to, to feel that way yeah and no i think so many people do and it's it's okay you know when we start talking about this stuff and you start talking to friends and family you realize just how small the world is and how many people are going through the exact same thing and it's been quiet over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, at least in my life, because it wasn't something that people talked about, you know, when my mom and dad were growing up. Or it was literally dismissed yeah, as a fake thing. It's, it's actually still dismissed as a fake thing by some people, which is just mind-blowing to me. And in some countries. But yeah, like in, in North America now, like, we're talking about it. It matters. Yeah. It's important. And I think anyone who's gone through anxiety, depression, any issues with mental health, they'll understand, damn. Okay, I'm here for you. What can I do to help? Most people are way more receptive to this kind of stuff than you'd imagine. Uh, I'm not sure it depends on your workplace. Uh, that, that might be another conversation <laughs> that is a for another day. completely different conversation. But when it comes to having support systems in place, the big thing for me is, you know, close friends, family, letting them know what's up and help, you know, sometimes you don't know what you need from them. Sometimes you don't realize that you just need them to come over and be like, hey, we're going out. And I'll be like, I don't want it. Like, too bad. We're going out. And you know, it helps drag me out of a bad place. Again, I'm probably rambling here, but I just like the idea of talking about mental health in general. It's something that's always helped me. And it's part of the reason I love this Bell Let's Talk, because the idea is, hey, let's just talk about mental health. It's great to talk about it. It helps everybody. Right. And you're also raising money, too. So um, any, I think, talk, text or retweet interaction kind of with the Bell Let's Talk tweet, um, five cents gets donated towards... Um, I want to say CAMH, um, and it's mental health initiatives and, and stuff like that. When, when that happens, that means there's more programs and, and more things available for, for people to get help. Because right now there's so many people that just aren't getting help, whether it be they can't afford it or they're not comfortable doing it. And this is kind of the whole thing. Not only um, should you afford to be able to do it, but you should feel comfortable getting help. Like if you have a broken leg, you're going to the doctor. That's not, well, most of the time you're going to the doctor unless you're a lunatic. But when a lot of people struggle, like when I was struggling kind of the last few months, I didn't speak up about it. I didn't say anything. I, privately I did to maybe two people that didn't even include my parents. And like it, it sucks. And it gets to the point where you're spiraling and, and you feel like you have nothing, nowhere to go. And you get to a really dark place and no one should have to be there. And there's a lot of good people, I mean, that I've met in hockey that have kind of really shown me that not everyone in hockey, like, is this terrible when it comes to mental health. There are people that that want to help and TSN has run some great pieces um last night there was something about Gemmel Smith and Patrice Bergeron and they did a Paul Ranger piece and and just kind of talking about how important it is to talk about things so if you can support Bell Let's Talk um you absolutely should uh, it's a great cause and 
um, just from my perspective, like everyone who's kind of reached out to me, whether it's friends or uh, on Twitter, whatever, like it goes appreciated. Like it's, it's, it's really appreciated. It's really helped, especially over the past few months. Yeah, real long shift here, but I love the the stories that we see on TSM, whether it's Jamil Smith or whether it's Nick Patan or on Sportsnet, I'm seeing Corey Hirsch talking about mental health and the fact that you're not alone. You know, here's a story about Tyler Mott who went through something similar. And I think this younger generation of players is realizing that, you know, it, it's okay to have these problems. It's okay to talk about them publicly. People understand it's not something you need to shy away from and hide. DeMar DeRozan talking about these things publicly. Kevin Love talking about these things publicly in the NBA. That helped me when I, you know, went to go get help and went to go talk to a therapist and, you know, got medication to help me with my depression. So helping to end the stigma, I think, in the year 2020 is something that's really important. What you realize the more people you talk to is that it's not as stigmatized as you think it is. It's just it's kind of all in your head. So uh, let's talk about mental health. I love Bell Let's Talk. Um, should be a great day. Let's raise some money for, for mental health awareness. That is the Kovalev Shift brought to you by Major League Socks, who is a huge supporter of mental health in CAMH. So go to ML Socks or MajorLeagueSocks.com, um, ML Socks on Twitter. Uh, you can use the code STAFFGRAPH and you can get 15% off your purchase of uh, Major League Socks. And there's a bunch. So um, either hit them up on Twitter at ML Socks or MajorLeagueSocks.com and get yourself some socks. Promo code STAFFGRAPH. No spaces, right? No spaces. Staff graph. You're gonna make it. Also, you can get some Bab socks. You know, I wonder what he's up to these days. We're gonna get pigeon socks just for you. We need to get some of those. Actually, you know so what? Yeah, we're for... gonna talk to them. We need our own socks. <laughs> I was gonna say, if, if we can get our face on some socks, holy crap! I, I would buy those in a heartbeat. Oh my god! Alrighty, <laughs> we're gonna go to the mailbag before this gets very out of hand. You know the logo on our podcast? We get those faces on some socks. Oh baby. Oh, we could do that. We could get our it's logo on, on, on some socks. Very doable. All right. That's what I'm saying. Well, Jake from Bab Socks or Major League Socks, if you want to help us out, let us know. <laughs> Promo code StaffCraft. All right. What is the first question in the mailbag we're going to get to, Rachel? Um, kind of basically on the topic of what we kind of talked about today. What year will it be when we see an expected goals chart on a TV broadcast of an NHL game? Hey, they talked about it on TSN when they were interviewing Kyle Dubas, and that's why they brought it up. And it was, I don't think they incorporated it in the right way. There are, there are a couple decimal points. I'm just thinking, oh, this is scary for a viewer who doesn't know what it means. One decimal point. I, one. <laughs> one decimal point or, or none. But I, I, I'm, I'm a one decimal point kind of guy myself. But I think the term expected goals scares people off. I don't know. I'm not sure what it is about it that's, that scares so many people because when you say scoring chances, everyone goes, oh, yeah, you know, we care about scoring chances. You say expected goals, it's, whoa, whoa, what's that? I think it's maybe the concept is so foreign to a lot of people. If we can make it something that's part of the mainstream, then maybe all of a sudden it's something that we can have on the broadcast a lot more often. I feel like it'll be the Sean McKenzie's of the world that help bring it to light more often. I know they're really good at using some of the, uh, the sport logic data that we see on the broadcasts a lot. It's some of these, these younger analysts that we're seeing, this new age kind of way of looking at the game. That's where I think we're going to see it. You know, I'm not sure if we're going to see it in uh, the, the, whatever the coach's corner equivalent is on Saturday nights during Hockey Night in Canada, but... I do have a feeling it's coming sooner rather than later, but in hockey, you know, that might be a few years away. Right. Um, I kind of agree. I think TSN does a good job of, and so does Sportsnet, of showing um, the home plate shots, and, like, that's a step in the right direction. Um, so I think maybe two years from now we'll see it as an intermission thing. If I if it's sooner, I mean, that's great. Um, all right. Is it possible to be a contender with good a really good defense and bad offense or really good offense and bad defense. So question, were the LA Kings a good offensive team? I don't know. Like I feel in their like prime? they just kind of held the puck. Yeah. Like they were phenomenal defensively and they were phenomenal on the cycle and they were great at grinding down opponents. But I would argue that offensively, they just kind of relied on a lot of point shots and got the, the rebounds and the deflections and everything to eventually go in. But I don't know, was that an elite offensive team? The Pittsburgh Penguins were not great defensively. I mean, even the Washington Capitals, when they won their cup, 
John Carlson's not the greatest defensive player. Remember Dimitri when Pittsburgh not the won greatest. the cup, though? Like, you mentioned they weren't the greatest, but they literally won the cup when Ron Hainsey was the top D because everybody was injured. You know Mike Babcock loved that. but <laughs> Is it possible, though? Because, like, people harp on on that and there's some really good defensive teams in the nhl right now and there's some really good offensive teams a team like tampa bay comes to mind obviously a team like the Leafs, where people can't shut up about the fact that they don't have defense is it possible to win because i feel like it is yeah i feel like it's been proven this washington capitals team i'm not sure why the narrative became that they were a big strong heavy team because they were very strong offensively at generating offense off the rush but they weren't that great defensively you know, they gave up a lot. John Carlson's a guy who is mostly all of his value comes offensively. He's not the greatest defensive player in the world, but that's okay because the pros outweigh the cons. And that team gets up the ice with speed, with numbers. They make those east west passes in the offensive zone, whether it's a Kuznetsov or whether it's uh, Nicholas Backstrom. Lars Eller has kind of revitalized his career here in Washington. He's making a lot of things happen off the rush. That's how that team generated offense. Same thing with Pittsburgh. Lots of speed off the rush. Both Pittsburgh teams that won the Cup and that Washington team, I'd argue that none of those teams were great defensively. I'd argue they were both below all all those teams. All three of those Cup winners were poor defensively, but elite offensively. And that's the reason they won the Cup. Alex Ovechkin, greatest goal scorer of all time, scored a lot of goals in the playoffs. But we build this narrative into them being the big, strong, tough, heavy team with Tom Wilson that won the Cup. (laughs) I don't know. I, I just feel like... I think it's possible. Like, I honestly, I think that you need to have something that's elite. And the only way that you have something that's elite is by giving up something somewhere else. In a salary cap world, I think it's the way it's got to be, right? Yeah. We're, this is not the Detroit Red Wings of the early 90s where you could just buy everyone. All 20, like, Hall of Famers on your roster. Yeah. Like, Sergei Fedorov is playing defense at some point. Luke Robitaille and Brett Hall are on your, like, second or third line. Yeah. Like it's it's one of those things where I really do think it's possible. Now you can't have a porous offense or a porous defense, or the one thing you can't have is horrendous goaltending. You have to have good goaltending to to win the cup. Like that has been proven time and time again. Be- okay, now I'm interested. Do you want to go through some of the names on that Red Wings team? Okay. All right, Brendan Shanahan, Hall of Famer. Sergey Sergey Fedorov, Hall of Famer. Brett Hall, Hall of Famer. Nicholas Lidstrom, Hall of Famer. Okay, you can stop it because it's. I think they're all <laughs> literally all of them. We'll go with who's not a Hall of Famer: <laughs> Luke Robitaille, Steve Eisman, Igor Larionov, Chris Chelios. I think all those guys are Hall yeah. of Famers. Yeah, <laughs> Pavel Datsuk, rookie Pavel Datsuk was on that so team. So good. He's Hall of Famer. Uh, and, then, and then they had like some of the more elite grinders in the league. You know, like the Chris Drapers of the world. The Thomas Holmstrom was one of the best net front presences in the team, or sorry, in the world. Uh, Dominic Hasek, Hall of Famer. Yeah, you know, top three goalie of all time top one mm, there's a debate to be had there's a debate but that we mm. were not gonna debate today all right i got him number one but who do you have number one i'm curious marty marty broder yeah. oh my god that's so biased yep. oh hey man that's not fair you go you go to new jersey and, and work okay all right that's we're gonna have to talk about this another day all right so Let's let's get into something that's maybe uh, we'll end on this just because um, it's probably a, an appropriate way to end it. Um, Kobe Bryant passed away really tragically this weekend, along with eight other people in a helicopter crash. And Ian's a huge basketball fan. Um, I was a huge Kobe Bryant fan. Um, so it's obviously like it's terrible. Um, and we just thought maybe we'd share a story um, about why we liked Kobe, or in Ian's case, um, maybe the basketball side of things. Because, like, for me, it, it, I didn't have a basketball side of things until I was much older. Yeah, it was really tragic passing, obviously, and the fact that his 13-year-old daughter Ugh. was also in the helicopter crash is just gut-wrenching, you know? it's just That's worse. You hear it's that. literally worse that, that there were children. When I heard that, that's when I just kind of stared blankly at a wall for a few minutes just because you don't even know what to do with that news, you know what I mean? It's just... That's where it, where it kind of hits you at your core as a human being, and you know it's kind of a, a hug your children kind of moment. I'm, I'm in my you know late 20s, so I don't know what it's like to have a kid, but... 
I got to think that's the worst feeling in the world to know that, like, you know, losing a, a kid young and throw throwing the fact that one of the greatest basketball players of all time, not a great day for a lot of people. Um, personally, I, I find myself conflicted because with Kobe Bryant, there's obviously been a lot of good in his career. You know what I mean? And he was one of the most dominant players of all time and had a, a lot of positives in his life. But it, I feel like a lot of us are overlooking some of the negatives in right. his past. And you have to look at the entire legacy, not just the par- parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. And personally, I feel a bit uncomfortable with how much we're glorifying all the positive aspects while without touching on the negatives. And I, I find myself in a tricky spot right now. I'm not quite sure how to feel. I think I might need a, a few more days, maybe a few more weeks to fully process everything. But uh Really, really terrible news. Awful news. You never want to see someone pass away so young. Age 41 for Bryant, 13 for his daughter. I think there were eight people in the crash in total. It sucks. It's it's awful. And the fact and that me- like everyone found out via TMZ, like that's just a vastly... The, the reporting of this news was horrendous at best. Yeah. The, it's the world we live in these days. It's it's not great. Um. Me and my girlfriend, we planned a trip to L.A. and Vegas. We've had this plan for months. We're going to see a, a Lakers game uh, February 25th against the Pelicans. You know, I was really excited. You know, LeBron versus Zion. And now hearing about this Kobe Bryant news, it's really shitty because he's one of the greatest Lakers of all time. You look at all the statistics. I think it wasn't he like first in everything, basically, in terms of, like you know, points, minutes, yeah. this, that, and the other thing, steals. And he wasn't even, I would argue, he wasn't that great defensively. I thought he was pretty overrated as a defender. But with with... Kobe, it's man. It's just, I have a lot of emotions. I have a lot of thoughts, and I'm, I'm, I haven't fully processed them all right now. So, I don't know. Still trying to figure things out here, but one of the, the worst news stories of the year just hitting everybody pretty hard right now. I'm personally more conflicted than the average person, but, you know, everyone goes through these kind of things differently. Uh, I might talk about it on my own podcast in a bit more detail, but. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to feel right now. Where are you at? Um, I think for me, uh, I obviously I grew up in a, a hockey soccer household, but basketball was always something like we played on the driveway and and um I kind of tweeted it out, but the whole thing of like you throw something into a garbage can and yell Kobe like as you did that. Everyone did that. Like literally everyone did that. And so for me that's like you're I didn't even know what the NBA was until I was probably 10, but I knew who Kobe Bryant was. I knew who Vince Carter was. I knew who LeBron James was. Like, I knew that those guys played basketball, but, like, I didn't know that there was a a league or I wasn't really aware of it kind of thing. But I was part of the whole, like, Kobe thing or, like, on the basketball court. Um, So it's one of those things where it's, like, that's part of your childhood. And then, um, obviously... Um, the fact that he was in his later years, I would say probably like the last five years, um, a huge supporter monetarily and, um, physically of professional women's sports, like a massive, the WNBA was talking about how he was such a supporter of their league and, and women's college sports. And one of the things I actually really appreciated about Kobe Bryant was after he retired, it wasn't about always coming back to Lakers games. Like he just wanted to be a dad. And he died legitimately going to coach his daughter's basketball game. And, like, my dad used to coach me. Like, you think it's it's a lot closer when it's like, oh, he, he, he died tragically, but, like, sometimes like that happens. But it's like when you die going to just you're being a dad or you're being a mom kind of thing, like, that's something everyone is, right? Like, I have a dad. I have a mom. And... I couldn't even imagine just heading to a hockey game and my mom finding out that both my dad and I died or like my brother going to a golf tournament and I find out that my brother and my dad died. Like that's I think the thing that is really gut-wrenching to me is he was just being a dad. 
I know that's part of the reason that the Humboldt Broncos um, you know, tr- tragic accident is, is that hit everyone so hard because it was a very relatable instance. And I think, you know, dad going to coach his, his, his girls basketball game, relatable, sucks. This guy that so many people, you know, looked up to growing up. And you, you can hear from a lot of players in the NBA. I didn't realize how much he'd impacted the NBA community. I right. didn't realize that he'd, you know, I think later in his career, I, th- I think... A lot of people close to him will say that he learned from some of the mistakes he made earlier in his life. Which you're allowed to do. Yeah, we hope you do that. that. I think we're still allowed to hold people accountable for decisions made in the past, and I'd argue that he was never fully held accountable for some of those decisions. But if you learn from it, it makes you a better person. Like, if you don't learn from it and you repeat it or you do it again like some other athletes, um, that's unacceptable. But the fact that you you should be able to go through training programs and you should be able to maybe make an impact on um, the community that you have harmed. Like that's an opportunity for a learning experience and and to better yourself as a person. Um, it doesn't bypass or excuse what you did, but you're certainly attempting to be a better person. And I think that realistically, that's all you can ask for at that point. I'll stop rambling here and we'll get out of here eventually, but... Again, this news sucks. Yeah. I think there's it's a deeper conversation to be had after the dust settles a bit here, but... At the interim, like, people died. It's <sighs> terrible. It's awful. 13-year-old daughter, and not to mention the other people involved in the accident. Yeah, there was sucks. another child on board. Like, that's two kids. Crappy, crappy week for sports, especially the NBA, and I'm a huge NBA fan, and... It's it's been really rough seeing a lot of the players post out emotional tweets and videos and them having to cancel the Lakers Clippers game. It's it's clearly something that's affected the NBA community a lot more than I I, I realized um, it would, and it's making me wonder if my conflicted opinion is is the wrong one. I don't know. There's a discussion to be had, but again, another conversation for another day. Let's get out of here. We're talking too much. Exactly. Alrighty. Well, have a great rest of your. Tuesday, everyone. We'll be back next Tuesday. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.